0: Uh, just keep me in line here. We did not have scripture reading yet, correct? Okay, good. <laughs> All right, let's 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 stand. <laughs> Can we stand for scripture one more time? All right, scripture reading. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 8 is our text tonight. Uh, I'll read this, then we'll remain standing for prayer. Jeremiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. O ye children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee out of the midst of Jerusalem, And blow the trumpet in Tekoa, and set up a a sign of fire in Betheserim. For evil appeareth out of the north, and great destruction. I have likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate woman. The shepherds with their flocks shall come unto her. They shall pitch their tents against her round about. They shall feed everyone in his place. Prepare ye war against her. Arise! Let us go up at noon. Woe unto us, for the day goeth away, for the shadows of the evening are stretched out. Arise, and let us go by night. Let us destroy her places. For thus hath the Lord of hosts said, Hew ye down trees and cast them out against Jerusalem. This is the city to be visited. She is holy oppression in the midst of her. As a fountain casteth out her waters so she casteth out her wickedness. Violence and spoil is heard in her. Before me continually is grief and wounds. Be thou instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from thee, lest I make thee desolate, a land not inhabited. May God bless His word. Please bow with me in prayer. Our God in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight. Thank you for those that are joining us. Thank you for those that are online. We pray for uh, many in our church that are away right now or not with us here. Just pray that You'd bless them and give them safe travels and uh, just return them again to us soon. And uh, we pray, Father, for Your encouragement. We pray for those that are uh, shut in, um, for Joanne, for Peg, for David. And we ask You to just minister to them and some of these other needs. Lord, we pray for Nadia and we pray for... Um, For Hannah's sister, we just ask you, uh, Lord, to minister to these dear gals. We thank you so much. We pray for those that are grieving. I pray for the Minshaw Rossi family. I pray for the Daly family. I just pray that you would minister your grace to these folks. And, uh, Lord, we ask your blessing now upon the word. Help us to magnify you. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. And keep Mr. Kerr in prayer as well. All right. Jeremiah chapter 6. We are continuing Jeremiah. And honestly, for a man that had a ministry for this long, you're talking decades to the people of Judah, uh, preaching over and over and over again to people that did not want to hear it. Uh, Again, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet uh, for a reason. And uh, we we have to stand in awe of a man that was given such a, a... an impossible mission, not really impossible, but we could say ineffective, but not really ineffective. You know, humanly speaking, all those terms would describe Jeremiah. Humanly, uh, he would be a failure because he failed to make one convert. He failed to convince anybody. But God had a bigger purpose. And, you know, it would have just been, okay, Jeremiah, I'm going to give these people a year, you preach to them for a year, and if they don't repent and, and wise up, you're off the hook. But he didn't do that. He sent Jeremiah back, and Jeremiah's message uh, continued. The same message, repent or judgment is coming. And he, and he did that through various kings, you know, during, during multiple years. He preached, and he preached, and he preached. And he basically was given the same message from all kinds of different angles. And so today, we tonight, you know, we're here, and we are in chapter six, and we're already getting things repeated because the message is the same. Uh, a little more specific tonight, uh, where Jeremiah is taking some themes that he's already that we've already looked at in the first five chapters, and he's now being more specific. And he says, oh, verse six, uh, chapter six and verse one, o ye children of Benjamin," that was Jeremiah's tribe. So, he's going to share some things with his own tribe that he had already shared with the people of Judah, other tribes. And he's going to say some of the same things. And our key verse tonight is our last one, verse 8. So, let's real quickly look at it. We'll end on this. But verse 8 is the key. Where God says, Be thou instructed... Very specific term that is used there. O Jerusalem. And then here's the key phrase. Lest my soul depart from thee. What does that mean? It's a very, in the Hebrew language, is very strong terminology used here. That God is speaking to Israel. And he's saying basically, listen up. When he says, be instructed, he's, the root word here is he's saying, receive correction. Learn from this. You are being corrected. I am correcting you with this counsel. Be corrected. Change your ways. Or, if you don't, lest my soul shall depart from thee. Again, significant key phrase that we're going to look at. And that phrase is what gives us the title of our message tonight, which is, Repulsing God. Would you want to repulse God? I certainly would not. Hopefully that's your heart. And I would think that, that God's covenant people, the people of Judah, the Jews, would certainly not want to repulse his heart. And yet, that is exactly what happened. And Jeremiah, again, is challenging them. Uh, and and so we're going to talk tonight about how, how it's possible for someone... To be the term in the Old Testament that's used often is abomination. When something is an abomination to God, it is repulsive to Him. It is so contrary to His character and His manner that, um, much like the New Testament, when I think of the Church of Laodicea, kind of similar similar terminology. I mean, you, you might remember the Church in Laodicea. The Lord said, "I will. I wish you were cold or hot." But because you're neither cold nor hot, I am going to spew thee out. And we're, we're finding this idea here that there are things that repulse God. And we would do wise to learn from this. That there are things that we could do in our lives that would actually incite God to be repulsed from us. And we don't want that. We desperately need God's power. We desperately need God to work in our lives. And we do not want him resisting us, but he will, as he did the people of Judah. So let's jump in. Uh, let me give you the outline as we just work through these verses. Um, so again, a lot of this is the same same challenge, but more local, specifically Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah's tribe. And first we see the alarm that trouble is ahead. And we've already, one of our messages recently in Jeremiah was called, Had the word alarm in it. Uh, It's a similar message. Uh, And that's verses 1 and 2. Then, uh, then the next one, verses 3 through 5, is the mindset of the enemy. God is actually, through Jeremiah, giving insight to Judah. Like, he's actually telling them, here's what your enemy is planning. Here's Here's what's going on in their mind. Amazing. I mean, this is incredible. That God would give them such insight that... You know, again, you'd think that they would say, wow, this is going to come to fruition. These are things that are going to happen, but it didn't affect them. And then following the last one is verses 6 through 8 is God's reasons. Again, this is all stuff we've covered before in past chapters. But once again, God doesn't have to, but he tells them, this is what I'm going to have to do because here's how what you're doing is affecting me. And I need to punish this. I, I I can't. I don't have a choice. But to punish you if this is left unchecked. So let's just jump right in. Beginning in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 1. It is alarm that trouble is ahead. Very similar to some statements in previous chapters. Verse one: O ye children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee out of the midst of Jerusalem and blow the trumpet in Tekoa. Tekoa, by the way, was a village the village actually where the prophet Amos came from, and it was about five miles south of Bethlehem. And uh, there's a play on the word in the Hebrew, because Tekoa is very similar, almost exact sounds, uh, with the word in the Hebrew for to blow. And he's saying, blow the trumpet in Tekoa. And, And the idea of a trumpet is a warning. Sounding the warning. Set up a sign of fire at Bathyserim. For evil appeareth out in the north. Here we go again. We have the enemy coming from the north. God's telling them this. And who knows at this point, because they don't have... Remember, it's not chronological. So they're not exactly sure, you know, when during Jeremiah's ministry he was preaching this, but there is a possibility that they were right at the door. And this, you know, this could have been part of Jeremiah's last ditch effort to say, they're here, they're knocking on our door. And... Um, and so the, the challenge is there. Now look at verse 2. I have likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate woman. I've li- and, and what's going to happen now, he's, he's about ready to set the scene. Again, he uses figurative language. He's going to talk about shepherds that come in. And, and actually, sounds like a quite peaceful scene in the next few verses. The shepherds come in and they camp around the daughter Zion, this woman, this beautiful woman they're talking about. Uh, but when you read the context and read what he's saying, this is not a um, a peaceful scene of shepherds and sheep. The shepherds that are camping around the, the this city are the enemy. They're the enemy getting ready to fight. Uh, but notice in verse 2, and I want to make a comment on this, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate woman. Now, uh, kind of connecting with our Bible study in the morning. The King James translators incu- included marginal notes, and and they also included a preface which gives some explanation and some defense of their use of marginal notes. In fact, let me read to you part part of that right now, because Miles Smith addressed the problem that could happen because of marginal notes. In other words, if someone's reading their Bible and then they look at a marginal note and it says, now you know that word right there might be actually this. Here's what he says. Some peradventure would have no variety of sense set in the margin lest the authority of the Scriptures for deciding of controversies by that show of uncertainty should be somewhat shaken. In other words, people could read it. They knew this. And yet they did this anyway. They put thousands of marginal notes in the King James Translation, because they were more interested in integrity than having a show of certainty where there were some words and verses they weren't as sure about. That would horrify some people today that that would dare to even correct the King James Translation when the King James Translator said, correct us. They welcome that. So, listen, in the margin of this verse, Jeremiah 6 and verse 2 next to the word comely and by the way, comely there's another aspect is that English has changed over the years. Uh, when you think of comely don't think of homely because the word is speaking that word is speaking beautiful, lovely but here's the thing in the Hebrew when they wrote that word comely, they weren't exactly sure because it was another word that that it could have been. And so here's what they put in the margin. They, they put in the margin the word comely, which shares, they're going to talk about that, and then they put, or dwelling at home. What? Dwelling at home and comely or beautiful are not the same thing, are they? One commentator who was of the same ilk as the King James translators made this statement. He said this passage, Jeremiah 6.2, It's one of the most difficult in this book. And then he says, here's what the most, you know, the generally adopted rendering is. He said, the context, however, seems to favor the rendering pasturage, including the idea of a nomad settlement. In other words, the word comely, they said, could also be dwelling at home, the idea of a nomad. Now, those are two very different things, are they not? So, here's again what the King James translators said. They said, It is pleased God in His divine providence here and there to scatter words and sentences of that difficulty and doubtfulness. They're talking about this word being one of them. And they're telling us, listen, we're not sure that we're putting the right word. But, in fact, they go back on that previous statement, Some peradventure would have no variety of sense to be set in the margin lest the authority of Scripture for deciding of controversies by a show of uncertainty should be somewhat shaken. In other words, they know that if they put marginal notes that are alternate than what they translated it, that that could get some people to think, oh no, their faith in the Scriptures would be shaken. And so for that very reason, people had the attitude, you know, whether you're sure or not, just, just come up with something and put it there dogmatically. And you know what they said about that? They said very clearly, We we hold their judgment not to be so sound in this point. The King James translators rejected that idea and rejected a lot of people who claim to be defending the King James Version but in actuality are repudiating it because they have canceled the very translators themselves and their philosophy. And I am very against cancel culture, as you know. And that includes the people that have canceled the philosophy of the King James translators. So they said, we disagree with you. Now, here's where Miles Smith goes on. It's pleased God and His providence here and there to scatter words and sentences of that difficulty and doubtfulness, not in doctrinal points that concern salvation, for in such it hath been vouched the Scriptures are plain, but in matters of less moment or less importance. What? Mr. King James translator, you're saying that there are Scriptures that are of less importance? What are you, what are you, crazy? No, that was their philosophy. That's why they put marginal notes in there. And then, in fact, he said, uh, that fearfulness would better beseem us than confidence. This is so going against the attitude of some who criticize any preacher that stands up there and dares to say, this word might be better translated like, that's the greatest heresy, the translators encouraged you to do that. Not undermining the word of God, but understanding how God gave us a word. And then he finalizes with this. In such a case, like Jeremiah six three or 2, I would add, doth not a margin do well to admonish the reader to seek further and not to conclude or dogmatize upon this or that preemptorily? And so they're telling us, hey, study it out. If there are things we weren't sure of, he take it. He says, he was basically in this area talking about that translation is not a finished work. F- pursue it further, and I, I thought of this today as I was looking over tonight's message. In our Bible study this morning, we had an interesting time, and we were looking at the King James translation and, and asking, what translation did Paul use? Do you know that Paul would quote from the Old Testament and he would use more than one translation? And we saw an example of that was Deuteronomy 25, and verse 4. And uh, Thea read it. And uh, thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the... Well, ours has ours has corn. Thea's had grain. John's had grain. Uh, in fact, that was a change in there I wasn't even expecting. But we were looking at when Paul quoted that verse in 1 Timothy 5.18 and 1 Corinthians 9.9. 9. And it was clear he was translating, he was reading from a different translation because the words are different in each one. Still the same point. And this is this is why I love what Talala Allah said at the point. This is the key. Talala made the point when we were discussing all this, you know. He said something to the effect that, you know, let's go back. What was the main point? Communicating. And that's the bottom line. Satan wants us to get, you know, picking and 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 Getting us distracted from what the scriptures are saying, and and I won't comment on that one Deuteronomy twenty five four though that's got some interesting things there. But let's comment on Jeremiah chapter six and verse two. Whether it was a a comely and beautiful, delicate woman, or whether it was, and, and this is where if if it was that alternate that was in the margin. Most theologians are like, if that's what it was translated, I don't know how that fits in the context. Uh, And they're right. But the bottom line is, what is the text saying? And the picture is that the people of Judah, specifically of Bethlehem, are getting ready to be attacked. And now, let's move on now, because we we find, verse 3, here's the picture that could be interpreted as a peaceful... Tranquil picture, but it is not. The shepherds with their flocks shall come unto her. They shall pitch their tents against her round about. They shall feed everyone in his place. Oh, isn't that nice? Mind you, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. And you've got all these wonderful shepherds with their sheep surrounding Judah. Only one problem. The shepherd... And the sheeps are an enemy army that are setting up to come and attack. Look at verse uh, four: Prepare ye war against her. Okay, we have moved the sweet, beautiful, peaceful analogy of the shepherd, and now we're giving some teeth to what's being said. This is a, this is a you know a, an enemy coming in, planting all around Judah, ready to attack. Prepare ye war against her, and let us go up at once, or at noon. Woe unto us, for the day goeth away, for the shadows of the evening are stretched out. Arise, and let us go up by night, and let us destroy her palaces. So what's happening here? The terminology, here's, by the way, this was common in Near Eastern uh, relig- or, um, warfare. That it was very common, most battles and most wars had a timeline because they were very much more than we are they were very much limited to daylight sunrise you know and, and so they wouldn't fight at night generally they would start their battles early in the morning so they had all day to fight and then when the darkness settled in they would all stop fighting and and that's when they would rest it reminds me of some scenes in the civil war the angel of mary heights and that guy that it was it was that scene it was at nighttime when the, war had, the fighting had stopped and that one sole person went out to try to bring relief to some of those people. But here we've got this. And here's, this is interesting. This hasn't happened yet. But the God of heaven, the omniscient God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is giving some intel on what is going on in the enemy camp. Here's what they're saying. Prepare ye war against her. Arise and let us go up at noon. We want to we get started here. And then, woe unto us, for the day goeth away. So the plan is, you know, they wanted to start like they normally did, early and fighting, but the day was slipping away. The shadows of the evening are stretched out. And again, that would be a time when you do not start war. But this army was so ready to do battle... That their attitude was, look at verse 5, arise. In other words, get up and let us go by night. Let us destroy her palaces. Let us prepare for battle. That's, That's what was being said. That's amazing. First of all, Jeremiah, the prophet of God, was giving them intelligence, information, that they had no way of knowing. You know, this reminds me very much of the prophet Elisha when it came to the Syrian army. Do you remember this one? This is in and don't turn there, but I'll I'll relate it, and I'll read some. But it was in 2 Kings chapter 6. We talked about this not too long ago. But it says here, this was um, in the text, it was right after um, Naaman, no, who was the guy that the 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 captain of the Syrian guard that had leprosy? It was Naaman, the captain of the guard. Okay. Uh, he got he got um He got leprosy, and then Jeremiah healed him, and then it went to his servant, and that whole thing. And then it seems like it goes right into this story here, but from the timeline and the the history and those that have studied, it seems like there was a big gap of time to when this happened. The king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such such a place shall be my camp. So this is the war room here of the enemy, the Syrians. The king, some think it's Ben Hadad, some think it's Aram, two different Syrian kings at different times. Um, but he's discussing, he's doing war against Israel. And uh, he's saying, okay, you know, imagine the table like they've, I don't know if they did this. You ever see the war room tables where they have a big map and then they have their little pieces and they're planning where the different troops are going to go and all? And you, you imagine that. And in verse 9 it says, and the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, and that was uh, King Joram. And so they know that, and that was so that was significantly after of uh, Naaman's time. And so God sent, the man of God, that's the prophet Elisha, sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of, and saved himself there not once nor twice. This is, I love this. The prophet Elisha is giving intel to the king of of Israel as if he was in that planning war room with the king of Syria. It's like he's like, okay, you're planning on this, I'm going to go tell the king of Israel. And so not once, not twice, at least three times, the king of Syria is ready to do battle they got their intelligence, and all of a sudden, Israel's not there. And it was so frustrating to the king of Assyria that he said this. It says, verse 11, Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore, sore troubled for this thing. I'll bet he was. And he called his servants and said unto them, Will ye not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? He thought, we've got a spy. No doubt one of my generals here, it's leaving this room and telling the king of Israel he was convinced of it. Can you blame him? You can't blame him because he was getting his intelligence. You know, Elisha was getting his intelligence not because he was a fly on the wall or he had some drone or some, uh, you know, bug, electric bug, you know, peep listening in on it. He, he was connected to the omniscient God of heaven who was feeding him information. And then so, this, this servant girl, in verse 12, and one of the servants said, No, my lord, there's no spies. None of these, nobody has betrayed you. He says, but Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. I love that. And then, of course, now he realizes, oh, it's Elijah." And so he sends his troops to go get Elijah, and you remember that I love that scene too, when it's Elijah and his servant and the entire Syrian army are are like the the, the vast landscape was the Syrian army against one prophet, and uh and and the prophet's uh servant or whatever saw that and just literally panicked. Help, Lord! What shall we do? And and Elijah, you remember that very calmly. It's like, hey. Those that are with us are greater than those that are with them. What are you talking about? And then Elisha prayed that God would open his servant's eyes. And for just a moment, the servant saw that the entire mountainside was surrounded by chariots from God. This mighty host that was going to do battle for them. And, and, and boy, what a, what a comfort to us to realize, folks, that God is... There's a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual war going on, but our God is in charge. And so, let's get back to this text now, here in Jeremiah, and uh, verses three through five. Uh, you know, it is amazing because just like the prophet Elisha was able to feed information to the king of Israel, so they would know the plans of the Assyrians before they did anything. So the prophet Jeremiah is now letting the very victims themselves, the people of Judah, the people of Bethlehem, the people of that area of Jerusalem, he was letting them know exactly what the enemy was saying. And what you know, exactly. They they're like they he's basically saying they wanted to attack earlier, they are chomping, they're ready to go. They really want to fight you, but the time's slipping away. But there's a lot of them that are about ready to attack you at night. And what an incredible thing. Now, just as the king of of Syria was alarmed, how how is he finding this out? So the people of Israel, the people of Judah, should have also been alarmed. Like, wow. How does... How does Jeremiah know this? He's telling us things that it's as if he knows that it's going to happen. And it would happen. Unfortunately, you remember their response earlier. God's not doing this. this is, Jeremiah, this is not what God's doing. And it very much was. So verse 3 again through 5. Arise, let us go. And now we go to God's reasons. Verse 6 through 8. Again, very similar to what we've been reading. He's, he's sharing with us different analogies to say what's going to happen. He's letting us know the enemy being lined up. And remember God's foreign servants? He's, going to get, he's already going to get these enemy kings to come in and, and chasten God's people. And now we read in verse 6. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, uh, the Lord of hosts said, Hew ye down trees and cast a mount against Jerusalem. This is the city to be visited. She is wholly oppressed in the midst of her. This is, by the way, tactics of siege warfare. They're talking about battering rams, uh, approaching the weaker parts of the wall. Uh, The fall of the city was inevitable. Uh, And this kind of goes back, a reflection on the foreign servants. You know, that God is is kind of now, again, going back to giving some instruction to the the army, which would be Nebuchadnezzar. And look at verse 7 now. Here's why God is going to do what he has to do. As a fountain casteth out her waters. The idea is of a fresh spring or a fresh well that is gushing forth fresh, sparkling cold water. So she, that's the people of Israel, Judah, so she casteth out her wickedness. Violence and spoil is heard in her. Before me continually is grief and wounds. And the idea of grief is is, uh, the Hebrew term that's used uh, is is the term that speaks of the focus. The idea is that it's sickness is another word that could be used. But look again at verse 7. As a fountain casteth out her waters, just like a fountain spews forth fresh water, so she, that's the Jews, that's Judah, casteth out her wickedness. So She's not spewing forth fresh water. She's spewing forth wickedness. Violence and spoil, devastation is the idea, is heard in her. This is interesting. What God is telling us is, here's, here's, my, here's how I see it. I hear a cry. I hear something. By the way, do you remember in Genesis chapter 18 and 19, God heard the cry from another city? And in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 20, it says, And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is very grievous, same terminology, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come up to me, and if not, I will know. Now that's peculiar because... God's hearing the cry. God is omniscient. Why would God say, I'm going to go down and check this out? It is not a fact-seeking mission. God already knows exactly what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. But He is doing this by way of basically communicating to people that I'm about ready to take action. And in my thoughts, my next step is to kind of do an official investigation just so all the truths are laid out. I already know what they're doing. I already know what they're guilty of. The cry has been coming up to me. That's interesting. Let's go back here now to Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 7. She casts out her wickedness, violence and spoil is heard in her. Before me continually is grief and wounds. Folks, God hears the wickedness of people. People groups. In fact, we've learned in the past that God judges nations in the here and now. He judges individual souls in the afterlife on Judgment Day. But He judges nations right now. That's why the nations of the past, uh, some of them are no longer because God... Judge them. Now the people of those nations will stand before God and answer to God individually. But God deals with nations differently. And here he is dealing with Judah and and their wickedness. It's like they're crying up to heaven. All oh, they're, they're 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 crying out for judgment. God judge us. They're not really doing that. But the holy God of heaven who created the earth and blessed them. All nations, pagan and not pagan, when they violate and do things that are repulsive in His sight, He must act to judge sin. God is a holy God, and He will punish sin. Now that is true for individuals on Judgment Day. That is, we will stand before God individually, but folks, He cannot allow the sin of a people, of a nation, of a country to go on indefinitely he is too holy for that now now we get to verse 8 be thou instructed the hebrew word is interesting in fact one of the jewish translations in the tanakh of this is be thou instructed uh, other translations put be thou uh, disciplined but the idea is of be thou instructed is not just hey I want to give you some information Okay, Take it in. I want you to take it in. No, the idea is, I want to bring you some correction. I want to correct you. And so the challenge is, again, remember, this is God would not punish His people as far as dooming them. Remember, uh, He would say, this, do not bring this to an end. He still had plans for the Jews. But they were going to be disciplined by being for, in 70 years in captivity, Babylonian captivity. But now he is challenging them and he wants them to be corrected. He wants, In other words, they've still got a chance. Even if the enemy was right there, right camping outside, because of this, they still have a chance. Be thou instructed. Please allow me to correct you. He's saying, O oh, Jerusalem. And then here's this phrase. Lest my soul... Depart from thee. The Hebrew word that is used here is very strong. And the idea is literally and like violently to tear itself away, to to be wrenched from something, forcible separation. And so this is what God is saying. Please be corrected. Please change your way, lest my soul is torn from you. In other words, you see this. God is not a God that has pleasure in wickedness. Psalm 5 and verse 4 and 5 say, Neither shall evil dwell with thee. But the God of heaven also says, in Ezekiel 33, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way. So we see this dilemma in just this last verse, Jeremiah 6, 8. God wants them. He's given them maybe their last chance. And He's saying, please receive this correction. Please be corrected, lest my soul be ripped apart from you. Because what you're doing, the idea is, I am repulsed because of my holy nature, God is saying. Because I am so holy, sin cannot be in my presence. You are forcing me to be ripped apart from you. What an amazing thing! This is very strong language. Recently, came across some quotes that have been a help to me uh, as far as this idea of um, of boundaries in relationships. And somebody somebody said this in, in a book in a book: allowing someone access without out, without accountability will eventually lead to abandonment. And this is uh, in relationships. That when you allow someone access without any accountability, it's going to lead to abandonment of one party to the other, or the other party to the other. That that's what happens in relationships, and that's exactly what's happening here in, in Israel. You know, they entered in a covenant relationship, and they are not living by the covenant. They are living an abomination before God. They're repulsing God, and they are they are forcing God. To judge them. In fact, remember the verse we looked at? I think it was just last week. It was Jeremiah 2.25. Your iniquities have turned away these things, and your sins have withholden good things from you. Don't blame God. And folks, by the way, on Judgment Day, or when God judges a nation, if America soon gets what it seems to deserve, it will not be God's fault. There will be many people that will try to blame God No doubt, but it will not be God's fault. Uh, We have, America clearly has just become an abomination to God. We are provoking a holy God. And I encourage you to read Thea's blog this week. (laughs) Um, Another another quote here with this, this book I was reading. Unchecked misuse of a relationship can quickly turn into abuse. That is true. And then, then the writer said this, and this is a good point, made me think of Jeremiah immediately. Like God, we must require from people the responsibility necessary to grant the amount of access we allow them in our lives. So irresponsible people, while God loves them, and He loved the Jews through this whole thing, That's if you doubted that, all you need to do is say, Jeremiah, come here for a minute, stand front and center. His very existence was a demonstration that he loved the Jews and he wasn't giving up on them. But, again, like God, we must require from people the responsibility necessary to grant the amount of access we allow them to have in our lives. And folks, Jeremiah 6 and verse 8, God is saying, you need to change, you need to be corrected, because what you're doing is repulsive to me, and Lest I make thee desolate, a land not inhabited. That's the challenge. That is their exhortation. I close with this. Um, I looked up, I found an article, and and I won't read it all, but uh, it caught my attention. Uh, It's called 20 Things That Can Make You Sick. And it tells you everyday things that you touch that can make you sick. And you don't even realize it. And I could, I'll give—I'll go into detail on one or two of them, uh, because it will ruin your day. It will ruin your next trip to the keyboard on the computer. Will have a whole different meaning. Your next trip to the kitchen to use the sponge will have a different meaning. Twenty things that can make you sick. Number one, bed sheets. Believe it or not, your bed sheets are a breeding ground for dust mites. They can live, die, and reproduce in your bed, feasting on your dead skin cells. As they do, they can affect your allergies and lower your immune system. (laughs) Sorry, you won't be able to go sleep tonight. You'll be thinking about those bed bugs. Pillows, same thing, more detail. Toothbrushes, cosmetics, doorknobs, light switches, refrigerator handles. You pull out the bacon to make breakfast. You pull out the lunch meat to make a sandwich. You pull out the chicken to make dinner. But how often do you wash your hands before you put it back? If you don't do it every time, your refrigerator handles could be contaminated with the same bacteria as the raw meat. Gross! Kitchen sponges. You think you're cleaning your dishes, but you might just be transferring bacteria from one place to another. Apparently sponges are breeding grounds for bacteria. That's pretty gross. Buffets. I'm not going to read that because we're planning on going to a buffet soon with my father in law, and, and I don't want to ruin it, so I'm just going to pretend that one's not there. Water pitchers, vending machines. Here's one caramel apples. I haven't had caramel apples since I was younger on Halloween. I mean, um, out of season produce, grocery carts. Listen to this one. A study at the University of Arizona showed that almost 100% of grocery carts are contaminated with E. coli. Isn't that nice? Here's the last one. Keyboards is another one. I won't go into that because of time. And then parking meters. Here's the last one. Money. The smaller the value, the dirtier it can be. Bills like 20s, 30s, and 10s, and 5s, and 1s, pocket change are used far more often which means they handle hands more frequently and then they of course they've tested them and there's there's so much listen there's so, your money is so contaminated you know what we're going to take an offering and just collect it from you so that you don't have to get your hands dirty I'm kidding but you know what there are things folks you know I just read this hoping to maybe repulse you a little bit But it definitely gets you thinking, you know, I don't want to get germs, but I want to tell you something that our God is so holy that because he was in a covenant relationship with his people, their actions affected him. Remember that word, the idea of the term that's translated in verse 8 to be repulsed or that, that gives that meaning. Be thou instructed, lest my soul depart from thee. My soul is ripped away from you because you have become an abomination, is the idea. Because your actions are repulsive. As much as I love you, I have to limit access. And he was going to, if they would not be corrected, he was going to discipline them 70 years. And that's what would happen. So what's the takeaway for us? Folks, understand that there are things, and God, He doesn't hide it. We're not like, man, I wonder wonder what it is today that Christians do that would repulse God. Hmm, I don't know. God has made it very clear that there are some things that you and I could do that would repulse God and very much affect our relationship with Him. But folks, by the way, God gives us grace to get rid of every one of those things in our life. He is so powerful that He can enable us. Once you realize, it, you have to first realize, I'm repulsing God. This activity that I do or I'm involved in is repulsing God, so He can't bless me. And you have to realize that before you start asking for His help. Then we need to ask His help. And, and our God is awesome He's abundantly able to do above all that we ask or think. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these dear folks. Thank you for any that are joining us online. Maybe the one or two that are still online. Uh, Lord, bless, bless the application of this. Help us to learn that you are so holy. That there are things that repulse you. And Lord, help us to even care. So many people, they just do not even care. That that they are offending you. They they just they deny your existence. But Father, we care, and we ask you to help us to live by your grace in a manner that is pleasing to you. We ask your blessing in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, let's.